News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There are some mysteries that I do not get tired of talking about, and the case of D.B. Cooper is one of them. Now, that's a mystery that has endured for more than 50 years, and every once in a while, someone comes along who believes that they've uncovered new information or that they've even solved it. So do we now know who actually hijacked that plane from Portland to Seattle in 1971 and then parachuted over Washington and disappeared? So many people have theories. Our next guest has one too. It's Eric Eulis, author of Silver Bullet, The Undoing of D.B. Cooper. Eric, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. When did you first become fascinated by this case? Um, probably in the late 70s. Uh, I was an aviation buff as a, as a kid, and obviously this was an aviation crime. So I believe I, my interest was initially peaked in the late 70s. But it's really been the last 15 years or so that I've really started to dive into this thing. And uh, uh, the idea being that uh, we'll see if we can figure it out what happened. Okay. So when you say dive into it, how much work does this entail? What have you been doing? <laughs> well, it starts off with reading about 30,000 pages of FBI files. Uh, and that has led to uh, a number of interviews and a lot of research on my part, uh, a lot of boots on the ground efforts as well, and analyzing scientific data and so forth. Uh, so effectively doing what the FBI used to do, uh, they closed the case in 2016. So now it's, it's just up to a few people like myself to see if we can figure out who this guy was and what happened after all is said and done. Why did the FBI close this case? Uh, I think it's a it's a couple of things. Uh, they they didn't have anything new to work with at, by 2016, and there's this very practical part of it, and that is that in all likelihood, DB Cooper was no longer alive by 2016. He would have been you know 90s or, or certainly close to 100 at that point, and they certainly aren't going to you know they're not in the business of prosecuting people that are of that age. And uh, and I think additionally, there were, uh, quite frankly, any kind of prosecution would have been compromised because of some of the evidence and so forth that had been destroyed and, and misplaced over the years. Okay, so what is it that you think you've uncovered? Well, there was a skinny black clip-on tie that D.B. Cooper left on the jet, uh, and it was recovered by the authorities in Reno, Nevada, when the jet landed there ostensibly to refuel to fly down to Mexico uh, 1971, the tie wasn't of much value, but in recent years, it's been of enormous value because uh, we've had the opportunity to explore some of the particles from that tie under a scanning electron microscope, and that's uncovered an array, a healthy array, something around 105,000 particles that appear to be consistent with the aerospace sector, which makes sense because it does appear there was some sort of Boeing connection here. But specifically, there are a few particles on that tie that point to a very specific company, a very specific division within the company, and I would argue actually a very specific one or two people. Okay, so let's, for people who aren't as familiar with this, Eric, now why is it that it's been believed that D.B. Cooper had some kind of association with the aviation industry? The knowledge that he exhibited uh, is, is consistent with somebody familiar with aviation and specifically the Boeing 727 jet that he he jumped from. There were certain things that he requested, flaps set at 15 degrees. He, he apparently knew where the oxygen bottles were located on the jet. Obviously, that took place in, a, in an airliner. So that, you know, I, I think most criminals tend to 
uh, operate in their wheelhouse, something they're familiar with. So there are a number of things that seem to indicate that he was familiar with the Boeing 727, uh, the Seattle region at large. Uh, and that is part of the reason why uh, the authorities right out of the gate figured there must be some sort of connection to Boeing. And I concur. I think that's accurate. Okay. What do you think you have found out? Well, uncovering or digging into the scientific evidence, which is how I roll. I'm not into conspiracies and that kind of thing. I like to focus on the facts. And uh, digging into the scientific evidence uh, from the tie, it points uh, to a specialty metals manufacturer based in the Pittsburgh area. It's no longer around, but they were a significant supplier, subcontractor, Uh, of Boeing, a big supplier of specialty metals, titanium and stainless steel and other metals used on Boeing's aircraft uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s. So it does point to a specific company in part because there's a very rare alloy particle, titanium and antimony particle, actually three, that were on the tie that correlate with uh, a couple of U.S. patents uh, that point to the specific company. And this was an alloy that wasn't commercially produced or disseminated. So uh, one has to explain how it is that three particles of this titanium and antimony alloy ended up on D.B. Cooper's tie. Uh, it's reasonable to deduce that D.B. Cooper came from that lab, and uh, that's that explains it. Okay, so what else did you have? You went even deeper than that. That's, uh, well, certainly, yes. And there are there are other particles on the tie. There's a Another particle on the tie that's a stainless steel, uh, actually it's a titanium particle smeared with stainless steel, which appears to be consistent with what's called a cold rolling process, which also took place at the same company called Crucible Steel, called Crucible Steel back then. And uh, through, you know, once I had a company in mind and a specific location in mind, that gave me an opportunity to interview some people who had actually worked in this particular titanium research lab, and including a former supervisor who's still around today, 91 years of age. And uh, I described to him who it is we're looking for in terms of D.B. Cooper, a guy that would have been about 50 years old in 1971, a guy that's about six foot one. And uh, he pointed to a specific person, a gentleman named Vince Peterson, who passed away in 2002, who I've found to be a, an intriguing person of interest. I want to be very clear. I don't know if Vince Peterson was D.B. Cooper. I do, however, believe that a lot of the evidence that has been gleaned over the years points in Mr. Peterson's direction. If it wasn't Mr. Peterson, it was somebody very close to Mr. Peterson. All right. So tell me about some of that evidence that you think points in this direction. Can you sum it up for us? Yeah. At the end of the day, there's the physical metrics. Again, six foot one, about 50 years of age. The titanium research lab only had about eight guys working there. Uh, So you've got a very limited universe of people. And of course, when you look at the totality of the particles on the tie, there's more than just the titanium and antimony. There's salt and other interesting particles on the tie that point to Mr. Peterson's research over the years. So again, just looking at the totality of the scientific evidence, in addition to the metrics, again, the physical metrics, six foot one, 50 years of age, and frankly, just his appearance, I think there's, an, there's an, a resemblance to that initial D.B. Cooper sketch that, again, uh, indicates that this guy may well have been D.B. Cooper. I'm on a quest to figure it out, trying to get access to the D.B. Cooper's tie to see if we can come up with a DNA profile on it. 
so, you know, there, there's a lot still going on here, but it's right. definitely intriguing and he's definitely an interesting person of interest. Now, you said he passed away in 2002. What about his, his family? Do they have anything to say about this? I have talked and met with his son, and I've also communicated extensively with his daughter. Neither one of them believe their father was D.B. Cooper, which is fair enough. That makes sense. D.B. Cooper got away for a reason, and I think part of it is because he just didn't brag about it. He didn't talk about it. So, uh, <laughs> pardon me. So that said, the, uh, the daughter in particular has been very helpful in terms of providing pictures and information and, and so forth. Uh, so using that information, I'm going to continue to uh, to move forward with Mr. Peterson and, and try to ascertain one way or the other, 100%, whether he was D.B. Cooper or he wasn't D.B. Cooper, because at the end of the day, this is a binary choice. He's either 100% D.B. Cooper or he's 100% not D.B. Cooper. Uh, so fortunately, the, the family has been accommodating, so that definitely helps my investigation. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this. Eric, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Eric Illis. He's the author of Silver Bullet, The Undoing of D.B. Cooper. If you're like me, you are still fascinated by that story. And here is yet another very good potential suspect on that. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're doing something a little bit different here on Mornings with Simi. And we've been talking about it so much behind the scenes that we thought, all right, maybe we should share it with everybody. Maybe you would like to join us. So Arch, Scott Shantz is with us now. Scott, how are you doing this morning? I am doing great, Simi. How are you? I'm great. Awesome. All right. So we are concerned about our finances. Yes. All of us, as yeah. many people are out there these days. Of course. We got inflation, uh, interest right. rates, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Post-holiday spending. Grocery the fees. bills coming. All of it, yeah. You name it. So what is it that we're doing? We have started a bet, a bet or a contest. I, I would say a contest. I think it's a contest because there's no money that's going to exchange hands here. Exactly. But pride is worth way more oh, than yeah, money. Sure and there's is. a lot of trash talking already and stuff. So amongst the four members of the show, yourself, myself, uh, technical producer Greg, and our lead producer Bianca, uh, we have decided that we have started a contest to see who can go the longest without spending any money on themselves. Any extraneous money. So we have some rules about this. Yeah. Obviously, bills have to be paid. Groceries have to be bought. But we're talking about discretionary spending here. So no restaurants, no eating out. Like no you Starbucks. Can, no Starbucks. No, like for me, it would be like no picking up that latest book. No, right. nothing like that. No discretionary spending. And we're trying to see how long we can go. Yes. And so we kind of went through a few of the different details and, you know, we've spent a couple of days asking questions like, what if, what if I need to get this? Like what if, um, right. we have for, to run it by the group to yeah. see if it's okay. Like for example, I am starting ski lessons with my daughter at Whistler this Saturday. And one of the things that I've been doing, like I did it every Saturday last season was Apre Ski. But Apre Ski is an indulgence. So we there is no, no Apre Ski. No, we said pack your lunch and pack your beverages. Yes. You are not doing Apre Ski. Now, what if though I join my group of friends at the restaurant and just sit at the table and say, oh, I'll just have water. And then one of my friends offers to buy me a beer. Right. So the rule we came up with that was that's fine for one beer, 
but you cannot say, I'll get you next time. I just have to get past this bet or this contest that I'm doing. Right. Because if I were to tell everyone that I ski with that I'm doing this contest. They'll probably be like, oh, we got you. We got you. you." That's right. But that defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to see how much money we can save. Yes. Uh, And then Bianca this morning asked about, uh, she has a Starbucks gift card which she wanted to use and she did use this morning because we said gift cards are okay because it's not like it's money coming out of your bank account. And it's prepaid. It's done. That money has already been spent. But we told her once the gift card money runs out, that's it. Oh, yeah. There's no uh, sneaky like loading up your Starbucks account or your Starbucks app on your Can't phone and then, and then using that. So what do you think is going to be the hardest part of this for you? Oh, for me, it is the occasional like Tim Hortons or, you know, I like a a great steep tea. Right. Or a little snack. Sometimes in the morning we get hungry, so we have a little breakfast. treat. Yeah, it's those kinds of things. And believe me, I can go to London Drugs and drop money, no problem. I can always find something at London Drugs or Shopper's Drug Mart that I need to get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That to me. So just... Cutting back on that discretionary spending. And the thing, the reason why we're doing it is so that we can hold each other accountable. Yes. And uh, we're also debating and like putting money in, like money, I say it like theoret, you know, not money, but we're, we're taking odds on who on the show is going to be the first to tap out. Right. And I think we all agree. We know who that is. Yeah, absolutely. It's our producer, Bianca. Bianca, for absolutely. sure. She's gone. And she's still in the bet right now? So, yeah, Has she lost she, already? She, so far, it's only been a day. <laughs> it's only been a day. So we're gonna, and so I thought, you know, this is kind of fun. And I'd love to hear if other people do this kind of thing. But the whole key here is that we're keeping each other accountable. I did go home and tell my husband about this. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and he knows all of us, right? He knows everybody yep. on the team. And he looked at me and he said, why are you doing this? You know Greg is going to win. So everybody believes that our producer, Greg, is the one who's going to win this thing. Yeah, other people around the office have taken an interest in the contest, and they all think Greg is going to win, too. Until, just... But Greg said he has to, if he can make it till fishing season, because of fishing season, then he wants to buy a whole bunch of new fishing gear. I'm going to drive him by every fly fishing story you can imagine, <laughs> just to see if we... Send him so links. that's the fun part about this, but the serious part is that we are trying to kind of highlight to ourselves where we can maybe save a little money and the high cost of things out Absolutely. there right now. Absolutely. And if, you know, at the end of the month, if there's a few extra hundred dollars in my account, that's awesome. Really? You think you're going to save that much money on this? I don't know. I guess we'll find wow. out. Like I, I'm pretty spendy, I think. Well, I think you are. That's why we started <laughs> this. I uh, would love your advice on this. And by the way, this is the honor system. We're doing it like the Seinfeld Masters of My Domain contest. Yes. This is just the honor system. <laughs> That's how we're going to do this. We're keeping each other accountable. Would love for you to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com. Scott, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, we're going to talk about healthcare, very hot topic right now. This is something the NDP government has been quite aggressive on, but is that helping them? No, I think the really surprising polling number, and when you see the dramatic reversal, I think it is surprising and dramatic, um, is the polling rating given to the government for its performance on healthcare. So this is the Angus Reid Foundation. They're a nonprofit, they're independent, they just poll and led by the grand old man of Canadian polling, Angus Angus Reid. So they ask the public through their polling, obviously, uh, the satisfaction rating with the government on healthcare. Going into the last provincial election, so, John Horgan calls a snap election in September of 2020. 
The Reed organization's polling uh, that month said 67% of British Columbians gave the government a favorable or indeed a very favorable, very good rating on health care. And a big part of that was uh, management of the COVID-19 pandemic. Almost everybody who was polled, 82%, said, yeah, the government's doing a great job on that. So, you know, on the strength of that kind of a rating, uh, Horgan calls a snap election and he won a snap election. So you fast forward to today, the most recent uh, read poll was released this week. The numbers are almost precisely reversed from 67% favorable, 70% negative. Uh, the government's doing a poor or a very poor job managing health care. Well, pandemics faded to the background. I don't think people have changed their mind about how the pandemic went. But as you know, as we know from our business, uh, the public moves on. And today, the debate around health care is waiting lists, clinics that are closing or turning people away, um, difficulty still enormous getting a family doctor, and what the premier himself admits is unacceptable wait times for cancer care. So uh, it's a pretty dramatic reversal. Um, it I think bears out what we hear in our business. It's also supported in general terms by other polls. So it's not just that the Angus Reid Institute has found something that other people haven't detected as well. Um, it all adds up to, um, I think, a, a potential for an election year. Uh, we don't know how all it's going to play out. Uh, Simi, the premier got asked about this this week, the numbers, and he said, I said what New Democrats say. You know, the previous government neglected health care. Uh, okay, that's a seven-year-old argument. But anyway, he said that. Uh, the New Democrats are dealing with it. But, uh, you know, the problem, and he points to the numbers, the system is overwhelmed. There's some truth to that. We are breaking records for the number of people in hospitals. We've added something like 300,000 more people to the MSP registration, to the medical plan in BC, uh, we're swamped. Well, maybe that's not the right word, but we are full of uh, yes. immigrants and the population is getting older. So we all know the reasons, but I, I say, you know, in from the last election, you're getting a 67% favorable rating on your handling of healthcare to today when you're getting a 70% negative rating on your handling of healthcare. It has to mean something. <laughs> yeah. So if you're the opposition, you would be feeling optimistic about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Kevin Falcon, as you know, in his year-end interviews, he, he loses his temper, I would say, over the polls that show BC United in third place behind the BC Conservatives and the NDP. And in one year-end interview, he said, those polls are BS. Well, he's finally found a poll he likes. Because he That's came funny. out this week, he told our colleague Rob Shaw that this poll, it's negative ratings for the government performance on healthcare and negative as well on housing, 83% negative, and negative on cost of living, 81% negative. He said all that adds up to a good argument for a political party to campaign in an election year on time for a change. Um, by the numbers, I would say he has a point. But of course, Simi, it raises the question, 
The numbers have been headed in this direction for a while. Why hasn't Kevin Falcon been able to capitalize on it? Yeah, that's something I would definitely be concerned about if I were the opposition. So does that mean that they there's a little wiggle room here, would you say, for the NDP? Yeah, I mean, I think the premier wasn't in a panic over these numbers. I, I've covered governments that if they had this kind of negatives on the three biggest issues, because the, the polls, the public also told the pollster these are the biggest issues, housing affordability, fighting with the cost of living and um, health care waiting. They, they said that's the big issues as far as they're concerned. And the government's rating is negative on all of that. So the NDP government in the 1990s would have been in a panic and was in a panic for a long time. Because when you're getting those kind of ratings from the public, you worry. Why aren't the why are the Democrats really all that worried? I think it's something that also emerges from the polling, which is uh, and this is what upsets Falcon uh, opposition to the government unfavorable ratings to the government are significant. EB's favorable rating is 46%. His unfavorable is 41%. That's not great. That's close. That could be a tight election around those numbers. But the 41% disapproval rating is split between three parties. So, you know, I mean, the New Democrats uh, have their own polls and they probably are getting similar numbers on this. But what they, when they sit down and think about it, they say, well, yeah, you've got some significant negatives, but nobody's been able to combine them, mm-hmm. the negatives, into a single party message. Um, you know, I hear from uh, people who formerly were known as the BC Liberals that, well, you know, you got to recognize there's a big differences between the 1990s. And sure, the public has changed, the media has changed, the landscape has changed, the way of connecting to the public, all of that has changed. But, you know, I said to one of them the other day, Pierre Polyev seems to have figured this out, right? He's figured out how to take the negatives of the national government, turn it into a coherent message and communicate it to the public, and it's working. So, you know, they, you can complain and whine all you want about how things have changed. You know, if we weren't split into, you know, two opposition parties, conservatives and liberals, you can say whatever you want about it. Yeah. The fact is, it can be done. It is being done at the federal level. And, yeah, it's not up to the government <laughs> to combine its opposition. It's a challenge for the opposition parties. Until they figure it out, well, it's no wonder that David Eby kind of looks at those numbers and goes, yeah, well, we, we better get to work on this stuff. But in the meantime, he's not in a panic about a 70% negative rating on his handling of healthcare. We're going to talk more about the housing issue now with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, because there's no doubt uh, Von, the NDP are trying a lot of different things when it comes to housing. They are trying a lot of different things, and they passed a great raft of legislation last fall, and they're fast-forwarding into implementing it this year. Premier's promising results by election day. He wants shovels in the ground and all that. The pushback on this is interesting. Uh, we've a good piece in The Sun today by my colleague Katie Rosa, uh, based on a report put together by a couple of administrators at Metro, Metro Vancouver. And they're saying, hang on, you have created some unintended consequences. And here's the thing they're pointing to. So the government is getting rid of single family neighborhoods. 
they're getting rid of the zoning for it. And they've ordered municipalities to rewrite their zoning to allow this. So the report says, look, there's a bunch of neighborhoods in Metro Vancouver region that are single family, not because of NIMBY forces, but because there's no transit in those places. If you suddenly step in, as the government is going to do, and put in uh, multifamily on single family lots, uh, two, three, four, up to six units, and say that's how we're going to deal with the influx of immigrants, you're going to create a problem. There's no transit. Immigrants, and again, the survey shows this, immigrants, they, they move into places, rent or buy, um, near transit because they're going to be paying enough on their mortgages or their rent that having to have vehicles is another issue. So the government is going to step into all these multi single-family neighborhoods and turn them into multifamily. Uh, the government is going to have to address the fact that those places are not served by transit, and transit is what makes density work. So it's interesting. This report, Simi, comes out. As you know, there was a press conference yesterday by TransLink. So Metro Vancouver and TransLink are on the same page in their messaging here because there's a big press conference yesterday by TransLink. Uh, Brad West, Brenda Locke coming out and saying, look, uh, TransLink has a plan uh, to improve transit all over Metro Vancouver, but the government, senior government's are going to have to step in and provide some money. They say short-term, $500 million in capital. Short-term, $200 million in operating funds or some of those plans are going to have to be put on hold. So, you know, there's, there's two ways to push back at a very ambitious government plan. I mean, one way is to just protest and push back. The other is to say, think about the consequences of what you're doing and tell us how we're going to adapt to this. And I think we're going to see both strategies this year. The New Democrats face some huge challenges in implementing their very ambitious housing plan. Do you feel like that's going to be, you know, one of the hot topics on on the election campaign? Like I think healthcare will definitely be one. Housing will definitely be another. It'll be what would you do differently? I think, yes, I think, what would you do differently? And I think also, uh, where are the results? You know, the premier in his year-end interviews said that he wants to see uh, the housing underway before the election. He wants people to see results. So he wants groundbreaking ceremonies. We, they still are coming out, Simi, with one more ambitious housing plan, which is called BC Builds. Uh, it is due before the election, uh, before the budget, or around that time in February. Uh, what it is is the government's gone out and assembled a whole bunch of public land uh, owned by Crown Corporation, school boards, municipalities, indigenous nations, uh, provincial land. Uh, they say they're going to make that available with provincial financing to build housing for people who can't afford housing, miss the missing middle. Uh, they say they're going to do it. They say they're going to roll it all out at the same time as they're telling the municipalities they have to adapt to last year's legislation by June the 30th. I mean, even if you give the government, Simi, credit for the best of intentions on this, and I think they do deserve credit for good intentions on this, 
it is going to be very difficult to manage that to the premier's promise of results and groundbreaking ceremonies before October the 19th, which is election day. Well, so much for us to talk about. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Certainly those two issues will be the big things that we are talking about in this election year, the healthcare system and housing. Some of the numbers that came from Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday are quite astonishing, as Vaughn pointed out, that we have more than 300,000 people that have been added to MSP, have signed up for it now. Obviously, that makes things more challenging, trying to find space for all those people. And we ourselves are getting more complex healthcare issues that we have to deal with, which is causing that to take up more time in the healthcare system too. So again, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you've heard the forecast there. We're keeping a close eye on that. Snow expected to start falling today. Very cold temperatures out there, so please do bundle up. And a very high tide that it could, could cause some flooding issues too. So keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. Right now we are joined by our Scott Shantz, who's been delving into something that I know a lot of parents worry about, Scott, and that is when they go out publicly, will they be able to find a place to look after their baby? Yeah, exactly. And let me start by asking you this, Simi. Do you use Reddit at all? I do not. Okay, so I'm a frequent Redditor, especially lots of the local threads. I know there's some good stuff on there. Totally. And I was reading on this Vancouver Reddit page, and uh, a woman had posted this question asking, where are all the baby change tables in Vancouver? She's a new mom, and uh, she's having issues because lots of times she's out with her, her new child and is going to cafes and restaurants, only to find that if they do have like a family washroom, the family washroom sometimes doesn't have a baby change table and that thread exploded with lots of other parents sounding off and weighing in saying I'm experiencing the same thing I don't like this is so difficult it's so gross changing your baby's diaper on the floor what else are you supposed to do so she started a baby change table registry it's called vancouverchangetable.com her name is Michelle Sisa she's a Vancouver based writer and like I mentioned new mom and uh, she's here now and Michelle tell me about this this website that you started, Vancouver Change Table. So I have a baby. He's almost seven months old, and I take him lots of places. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And often I'm surprised when I take him to like a coffee shop or a restaurant um, that they don't have a change table in the bathroom, even if the restaurant has like high chairs or a kid's menu or other indicators that it's like a family-friendly space. Uh, and it's also just information I couldn't find anywhere. Like if you look up a restaurant on Google maps or on Yelp, you can usually find, you know, all this information about their hours and whether they take credit cards and things like that, but you can't find out whether they have a change table. Uh, so it's kind of hard to plan in advance if you're going out with your baby and you think you might need to change them. And so I thought I would just be the change table map I wanted to see in the world. Uh, and I put this together because I had some time off for work. I had no deadline. So it was kind of an, a little impulse project. And my husband helped me with the design because he also is frequently struggling to find a change table. So it's a real little family collaboration. I noticed on the Reddit thread, and I know there's a website as well, but the Reddit thread, there was a ton of response from other parents who have experienced the same thing. Do other people in your community tell you that? Is that the response that you've sort of been getting from the website as well? 
Yeah, I would say the most common response I've had is from other parents who say, oh, I wish this existed when my kids were little, or people who have babies now who also have experienced this terrible moment when you have to change your baby's diaper and you take them to the bathroom of the business you're at and you realize there's no change table and you're going to be kneeling on this disgusting bathroom floor. Um, That's probably the number one. And then the second most common response I'm getting is from dads who say, can you also map what gender the bathroom is that has a change table? Because it's still more common for change tables to be located in women's bathrooms, even though dads also change diapers. I am a dad and can definitely relate to that. I have two young girls who are fortunately um, past that stage now, but that, yeah, of course we, we carried it around and I'm sure parents can relate to this, like a changing pad because we knew you might just have to, you know, make do and do this on the floor or wherever, you know, wherever kind of works. So have you spoken with any like any of these businesses or um, have any businesses responded saying that that you're right this like any type of explanation as to why certain places aren't aren't having change tables as much as they maybe used to I haven't talked to businesses yet I mean at the point of often asking if there's a change table servers or cashiers are often apologetic about the fact that you know the place they're working doesn't have one um and, you know, it's it's kind of hard to figure out the logic of why some places have them and others don't. Like, I've been to a lot of newly opened restaurants and cafes that, you know, clearly did a renovation recently and didn't think to put a change table in their bathroom. Um, or places with, you know, nice, large, accessible, all-gender washrooms that definitely have space for a change table and don't have one. Um, whereas, you know, often a lot of older businesses or especially chain restaurants like White Spot uh, are more likely to have them. So I'm not really sure like why businesses make the decision not to have a change table, especially if they're sort of explicitly or implicitly welcoming families into their space. But hopefully by sort of mapping the availability and where these spots are, uh, maybe it'll motivate some businesses to spend the money to put a change table in their bathroom. And hopefully at least it'll give parents like one more tool to make a decision about where they're going to go and how they're going to plan for the day. For anyone who's listening, uh, whether you be a business or a parent um, and you want to either get involved and register a business or just throw support behind the idea of a change table registry, where can people go to get more information or to look up whether or not any of these places have change tables? So it's VancouverChangeTables.com and We have a very easy little submission form for people to submit whether a business has or doesn't have a change table, including what the gender of the washroom is, if that's relevant information. Uh, And we're mapping both, you know, businesses that have them, but also businesses that don't. So if you've been surprised by um, a restaurant that doesn't have a change table, please tell us about that as well. Michelle, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. And also thank you for uh, taking the initiative on something that sounds like it was kind of long overdue. Um, Really appreciate it. Congratulations again and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks so much. Simi, be the change table you want to see in the world. <laughs> you know, I was thinking as I was listening to that, what what did we do back in the day before there were change tables? Well, I don't know. I wasn't alive then. Well, no. I mean, come on. You probably were. It was just before your time. That's all. And I'm thinking 
probably a lot of parents, maybe, well, they didn't go probably go out as much with a little baby. Probably that, yeah. Changed in the car, like put the baby in the yeah. car and change the baby there. Like, yeah. I think we've always kind of adapted, but yeah, we've become used to that kind of convenience. If you, sure. If you want people to spend money in your restaurant or your location, you kind of have to make it easy for them to do that. Yeah. And as a parent, it's super frustrating. And I've also, I'll say I've worked in restaurants where there isn't a change table and then people resort to like doing it in a, in a booth or what, which is like, yeah, who, no, who you don't wants, want, nobody don't want wants that, to see that, you know? Nobody so like put the change table in, make it easy on us. That's very true. That's very true. Uh, thank you for that, Scott. Sure thing. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. I'm sure parents have been very creative over the years about finding ways if there is no change table for the baby. This is Mornings with Simi. We're keeping a close eye on that weather forecast. It is very cold out there and there are a few traffic problems as you just heard there from Ian Wilson. Snow is coming later today. Most likely they're already doing some of the uh, pre- uh, you know, kind of snow commuting work on the Portman Bridge in particular. So we'll have all those details for you. Keep it tuned in here for the very latest. Right now we're going to talk about housing. Do we need more and better ideas for innovative housing? We're trying a lot of things right now here in BC, but could we be doing more? The question is, well, like what? Well, that's the idea behind a contest being hosted by Urbanarium, and we're going to find out all about it now with the help of Amy Nugent, who's the executive director at Urbanarium. Amy, thank you for being here. Good morning, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. So what is Urbanarium? Well, Urbanarium is a platform for the discussion of ideas and issues about the planning and design of communities, how our cities and the forces acting on them work, what urban futures might happen, and what can we do to affect those outcomes. Okay, so you've got a contest because you want people to think, what, differently about housing? Yeah, our focus over the next couple of years is going to be affordable housing and climate uh, change and resilience. And so decoding density, this is our upcoming upcoming competition that we launched uh, just before the holidays, mid-December. It's a global competition open to everyone everywhere to reimagine the future of mid-rise apartment designs in Metro Vancouver. So we're looking for seriously creative ideas that will challenge building codes and other regulations to better address uh, housing affordability and climate resilience. And we've got some serious prizes that I just got to say. Uh, A $12,000 top prize, a $10,000 planner's prize uh, that will be chosen by a panel of urban planners, including the head planners from the city of Burnaby, Richmond, Surrey, and Vancouver. $45,000 in prizes total. And the opportunity to kind of profile your work, be part of a big um, housing conversation, um, and uh, to affect policy change. So this is our, our third competition in the last five years or so. Uh, we issue these competitions every couple of years. Um, our first one was the missing middle, um, and then we did the mixing middle. And um, these ideas competition are really becoming mainstream policies. So decoding density, again, explores missing middle housing, um, this time at the high end of that density range, right. the, like the six-story to eight-story-plus apartment form. Okay, so have you seen designs come out of this contest that, you know, actually get used? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what I'm saying. The Our past competitions, the ideas that were generated through that competition um, are inspiring. They help push uh, innovation quicker 
people see them and they're like, hey, this could happen. So, you know, the missing middle um, uh, legislation is just coming into play right now uh, within the province. And so that's bringing density into our single family neighbourhoods. And our other competition was the mixing middle that layered on use. Why can't we have mixed-use residential areas like so many other countries? So then we saw municipalities coming out and looking at their corner store policies um, or why we can't kind of be a bit more flexible in the way we we use our places. There's a big term out there right now, the five-minute city. So we should be living, especially when the pandemic happened, our communities should have access to the resources we need to kind of thrive within our communities, more small businesses become better arrival cities. So, yeah, we see our, our competitions really do make real-world changes. Um, all levels of government are involved in kind of looking for these community-driven solutions to housing. And so a big part of this one, Simi, is um, challenging codes. So what's getting in the way of us building more innovative, yeah. livable housing? And there's some really... Um, there's some really seemingly small codes that are getting in the way. Like one of the big ones is uh, the double egress, the double corridor rule. So any uh, building over a couple stories need to have two exits, whereas in other countries they don't. But you will find that <clears throat> that one code um, really makes most of our apartments really wide really bulky um, and only have one or two bedrooms. It's a big reason why there isn't more three bedrooms in Vancouver and it's the staircase rule. So uh, the province has just rolled out um, an announcement that they're addressing, you know, uh, this code and other codes to see, you know, what can we do to really have more inspired density within our cities? You know, density is coming so Um, what's getting in the way and yeah, how do we make it better? So these competitions, we don't have the answers, um, but what these competitions do is they really generate a lot of new ideas. They help highlight and challenge codes that are getting in the way. Um, And then after the competition, we do big videos and a publication and they go out to all the city councils um, and within them, we pull out potential policy changes. Um, So yeah, so we we do see that this is a real effective way of of encouraging innovation and ultimately wanting to get more affordable housing out there. That's cool. So, okay. So Amy, where can people find more information? You can go to decodingdensity.com. Registration closes on um, January 19th. That's next Friday, but you have until April to get your ideas in. And so far, Simi, there are a hundred teams already registered. Wow. Okay. A hundred teams and individuals from 11 different countries. That's the other cool thing. This is a big international conversation. We, We got eyes and teams from around the world working on housing, affordable housing in our region. So, um, you know, very, very exciting. Yeah, it is. All right, Amy, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks so much to me. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. That's Amy Nugent, Executive Director of Urbanarium. They want people's ideas to be innovative when it comes to housing. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of questions right now about some new protocols from the BC Centre for Substance Use. Protocols involving the fentanyl tablet program. 
there are concerns that minors might be able to get access to this program and access to these fentanyl pills. So with all those concerns kind of swirling around on social media, we thought, why don't we just get right to the center of it with the help of our next guest. Dr. Paxton Back is with us, co-medical director for the BC Centre on Substance Use. Dr. Back, thank you so much for being with us. Morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. First off, what is the fentanyl tablet program? So the the protocols that that are being discussed uh, actually came out last last year, and I think it's it's I appreciate the opportunity to come uh, clarify some things around them because I think the the discussion right now is being a little bit um, a little bit disappointing in that it, it's really I think not focusing on 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 the more important issues that we really need to be talking about. The the protocols in question um, are referring to to a very very specific harm reduction initiative. Um, involving the provision of, of, of fentanyl products to a very, very select number of, of patients in a very select number of sites, two or three sites around the province, um, no more than a few dozen patients who, who, who have shown benefit from accessing uh, an alternative to, to a toxic and poison drug supply um, by accessing pharmaceutical fentanyl products. These are done almost exclusively in witness settings at harm reduction sites, um, under the under the eye of, of very experienced providers, and I just want to be clear: all there there is absolutely nothing around the, in these protocols and the approaches that's specifically discussing their use in adolescents. Um, uh, that that's really not the intention, right. other than other than the fact that you know, like any other form of medical care in BC, um, from you know immunizations to birth control to transplants. Um, it's it's arbitrary to say that somebody who's 19 can access it and somebody who's 18 absolutely cannot. Um, that's an arbitrary decision, and really, um, I think a much more thorough kind of assessment of of a situation and and, and an individual's needs is required for, for any patient who might enroll in one of these programs. You certainly have many, many additional considerations, and, and uh, but, but uh, there, there's no arbitrary age limit, and that's simply what these protocols reflect. Okay, so that's the concern, right, Dr. Back, is the fact that this pro, the protocols here don't specify a minimum age with which someone could potentially get access to the fentanyl tablet program. What kind of hoops would they have to jump through? I guess that's the question people have is like, would a child, a minor somehow be able to say that, yes, I need this? So any, any, any person who is interested in accessing one of these programs of any age would need to be uh, a patient at, at, one of, at one of a handful of select <clears throat> health authority funded um, harm reduction oriented sites around the province. There, there are there are three, to my knowledge, that are currently um, using these protocols, um, and they would they would they would get a thorough assessment by an addiction medicine specialist uh, and access to the entire breadth of treatments that we can offer. Everything from residential treatment to evidence-based proven medications for opioid use disorder to other harm reduction in harm reduction offerings that might reduce the risk of death in the current climate. Um, if uh, on thorough assessment and an assessment of their individual needs uh, and and desires um, and and the resources available, um, it was felt by uh, by the provider or by the providers that that these products would help engage them in care and reduce their risk of death, then they could begin to access them under very uh, controlled and witnessed circumstances while continuing to access all the other wraparound resources available through those sites. Okay, so are we talking about like maybe a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old, and would, would they get, wouldn't you need to get like parental permission? Would the parents be involved at all? 
So I have, I have a, a really difficult time ever imagining that being, being the case. Um, certainly dealing with youth, there are additional resources that are available to us, and there are many additional considerations. Um, uh, there, the, the, there, are, uh, there are no absolutes in medicine, so again, it would really depend on, on the situation and, um, and what is felt by the treating team to, to, be, in the, to be helpful for any given individual, um, uh, and whether they have the capacity and ability to participate in, this, in these programs themselves. Um, so so there, are no, there are no absolute uh, not absolutes in medicine. Would that ever happen? I, 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 can't, uh, I can't ever really imagine that being the case. Um, but it's always going to be a case-by-case basis. Right. So I guess the concern then, Dr. Back, is why not spell that out in the protocol so at least it's very clear that there would be so many hoops that somebody would have to jump through to get to that point? So so it is spelled out that for anyone under 19, it involves at least two physicians and, and, and a more careful discussion. And in general, dealing with youth, uh, it does open up an entire new area of specialty uh, in the area of addiction medicine. Um, but any, any, any age limit that we, were, that we would put on it is arbitrary. And really, as, as, as many other interventions go in BC, it's about somebody's ability to, to understand what they're participating in, their capacity to consent. And that is a fluid thing. Um, which which uh, doesn't necessarily hinge on any specific age. Right. Is this program helpful? What does it do for people? So again, a lot of emphasis on this program, and I think it's I'm I'm more than happy to talk about it. But we're talking about um, maybe a couple of dozen people across the entire province. Um, so really. Um, this is a pilot program, um, a program that's being launched on, with a very select group of people who have not found benefit from anything else that we've offered and are being evaluated. So that data is is being collected. But it does speak, I think, the discussion here is largely around the broader idea of, of what's often called safer supply or prescribed safer supply, which which hinges around the, the idea of providing people with uh, access to a regulated form of drug, um, something that's predictable um, as an alternative to, to an unpredictable and toxic drug supply. And the evidence for that approach in general is growing. It's actually quite timely um, um, to have this discussion because we actually had an article come out in the British Medical Journal uh, just today, um, myself and, and colleagues um, from Simon Fraser University and the BC Centre for Disease Control, describing the experience in BC over the first two years of the pandemic with such an approach and demonstrating that people who are accessing prescribed alternatives to, to, to the toxic drug supply a massive reduction in the risk of overdose death. So would you say that the people who are looking or in this program are people who want help, who are looking for recovery? I mean, by definition, the fact that, that, that somebody's there, they're looking for, for help. They're looking for some alternative to, to the environment that they're, currently, uh, that they're currently living in. You know, recovery is, a, is, a, is, is, is very much a subjective term. Recovery just... Um, um, recovery to... And within addiction medicine is really defined by an individual around, you know, moving towards um, a state of more stability, of, of higher quality of life, more safety, of more um, um, <clears throat> of, of, of sort of a self-defined, um, self-defined recovery. And so, yes, by definition, anyone who's continuing to come and engage in these programs is looking for a change and is, is through these programs able to access uh, all sorts of services, including things like primary care, wound care, uh, other harm reduction initi- initiatives, etc. So it can be a very effective way of engaging people in, in our system. Right. But you clearly understand that it seems like in the public right now, there is concern about safe supply and some of the measures that we've taken here in BC. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm very aware of the discussion, and, and I'm I'm very involved. Um, you know, certainly there ha- the the evidence is growing that this can be of benefit for people who are using drugs in terms of reducing the risk of overdose death. There are certainly many uh, unanswered questions and many potential unintended consequences that we really need to be thoughtful about and evaluating. Thus far, all of the evidence um, has, is not showing uh, harms occurring at a population level, um, um, despite many of the the, the stories that, that you might be hearing. But there, there, these are early days, and there, there remains many questions to be asked, um, many, many ongoing evaluations. All right. Well, Dr. Bach, thank you for taking the time to explain it to us this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks. That's Dr. Paxton Bach, co-medical director for the BC Centre on Substance Use, talking about what he believes are the misconceptions surrounding that fentanyl tablet program. There's a lot of stories swirling on social media right now that, oh, kids have access to it, but you heard there what the protocols actually are and how that works. This is Mornings with Simi. I think the story about the airplane with the door blown out last week really resonates with so many people because it could have been any one of us sitting there watching that happen. And with the subsequent investigation, it's kind of scary to hear that many other airplanes could have potentially had the same problem because of loose bolts that are meant to hold the door in place. And now it turns out this may have been known and nothing was actually done about it. Now, Katya Schwenks is an investigative journalist for The Lever and joins us now. Katya, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. What have you learned about this door bolt problem? Sure. So, you know, I I think it's important to say there's an ongoing investigation. It's still in its early stages. Um, But, you know, we at The Lever, we've been looking into one of the companies that manufactured this, you know, what's called a door plug, the piece of the plane that blew out over Portland, Oregon. Um, And we found that one of the companies involved in making it, you know, had received some serious allegations from its employees, which were in a federal lawsuit recently. Um, including, you know, concerns that were raised by employees months ago about, you know, how their wrenches were calibrated, which, you know, could potentially have an impact on on how bolts were fitting. So they, is it safe to say that they kind of, they knew that there was a concern perhaps with this? I think it's safe to say that, you know, the employees at this company, which is called Spirit Aerosystems, a key supplier for Boeing, have been raising concerns about defects, um, with the company's manufacturing, including with um, its torque wrenches, which um, you know may be related to bolts um, for months now, um, and you know that's according to these documents in this in this federal case. Okay, so if the higher ups at the company potentially knew about it, did anybody outside the company? Did did authorities know about it? Did the FAA know? No, I mean, you know, Spirit has gotten in some trouble for, you know, some defects with its products um, over the years. Um, But, you know, what this lawsuit, what's really, I think, compelling about what's what's here and what these employees were saying um, is that, you know, they told company executives, company executives did not tell the public, they did not tell the FAA, they did not tell investors about the full scope of these defects. And then if workers tried to speak out about it, um, they were potentially retaliated against, allegedly. So what what have you learned about in terms of perhaps things that might have allowed this to happen? For instance, we know that Boeing has had some of these problems in the last five years. The, the, the Max 8s were a concern too. Is there something in there that has contributed to concerns about quality control? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, when we spoke to aviation experts about, you know, what's happening with Boeing and what's happening with, you know, the many companies like Spirit that work with Boeing, um, they pointed to, you know, the FAA and U.S. regulatory authorities that have been underfunded, that have like have lacked um, the power that they need to provide proper oversight. And, you know, Boeing is increasingly, or over the last couple decades, these experts said Boeing has increasingly outsourced um, a lot of its manufacturing and maintenance to these subcontractors, um, to companies, uh, you know, outside the United States. So I think that has created a, um, a problem for, for regulators, and it's been difficult for them to provide proper oversight. And, and here we are now. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so is there, would you say, a a widespread investigation right now because of this incident? Yes. I mean, I think the shocking nature of this incident um, and, you know, how it's horrified the world, um, I think now we're going to see a full-fledged investigation. And, you know, um, we're seeing that happening right now, again, still in its early stages. But, I mean, I think the question of that investigation is how is this allowed to happen? How are we only asking these questions now, you know, after someone was almost, you know, could have been horribly injured on that Alaska Airlines plane? Oh, I know. They were just so lucky with that. Now, Katya, you talked about a a federal lawsuit that was filed in May of last year against Spirit Aerosystems. What do we know about that? Yeah, so so this lawsuit was again, like as you said, filed last May. It was filed by this company's Spirit's own investors, um, who said that the issues with quality control of this company, with these defects, these issues with the wrenches, with you know other parts of the manufacturing process, they were so extensive that because the company and the company had not disclosed them, which made it so the company was essentially defrauding its own investors. They said that because the company hadn't disclosed it to these shareholders um, when they became public and the stock value of the company went down, um, it essentially amounted to to a kind of fraud. So, um, you know, this lawsuit, of course, is still ongoing. These claims haven't yet been proven. Spirit has told us uh, in court, Spirit has told us it disagrees with the claims. It hasn't provided too many more specifics about what it disagrees with exactly. Um, but, you know, this eventually is all going to be, hopefully more is going to come out in court um, as the lawsuit moves forward. And I guess that also leaves questions about if this lawsuit was from the investors, this was going on for, you know, s- seven months before this happened. Like, what did Boeing know and did they ever raise any concerns about this? Exactly, exactly. I mean, these claims about the defects that I was referencing, those were filed um, in December, or that more of them were filed in December, you know, more than a month before this Alaska Airlines issue. Um, so, yeah, I think Boeing faces real questions here about how much they knew about what was going on. Right, because after that last, the whole Max 8 situation, Katya, is it fair to say that, that you know, Boeing was projecting this image of, oh, we take this very seriously, but now it sounds like from what you're describing is what they did instead was just push a whole bunch of stuff off their plate. I think it's very fair to say that, you know, even since, you know, that that horrible issue that you referenced, even since the two fatal crashes that involved um, the MAX plane, um, Boeing has still, um, you know, there have still been defects found in Boeing planes, including those manufactured by Spirit. You know, Boeing has spent a lot of money lobbying in Washington um, to get itself safety exemptions from regulators. So, 
I mean, I think, um, you know, experts say that Boeing really needs to, to answer for, for what's being, what's going on here. So Ketja, how hard is it in your line of work to actually pry information out of some of these aircraft manufacturers? Yes, I mean it's it's difficult. We did definitely did not get this information by asking Spirit and Boeing nicely. Um, you know, we they have had very little to say to us. Um, you know, the the reason that we were able to look at get these uh, find out about these issues at all was because of these court documents um, and because of the employees that you know wrote emails speaking out that were included in these documents. So. You know, I, I think these companies, it, it's clear to me at least that they, they are not, not working hard to bring these issues to light. No, it doesn't sound like it. So what are the questions that you still have that you're still looking into? Sure. I mean, many of the ones that you've asked about, um, you know, what was the FAA's role in all of this? What kind of oversight were they providing spirit? You know, and I think, you know, as the investigation moves along, that's going to really start to both answer the questions we've had initially about the Alaska Airlines flight and start to raise new ones about, you know, who knew what at what time and and how this was allowed to happen. Oh boy, I look forward to reading more about it. Katya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Katya Schwenk is an investigative journalist for The Lever looking into the airline industry, the manufacturing industry. What went wrong with this whole situation with that Alaska Airlines plane where the door blew out? And did, did investigators, did people, did the company that manufactured that know that there were problems months ago? Well, it certainly sounds like there are some concerns about that, right? So we'll keep following that story. This is Mornings with Simi. Pretty cold and windy out there right now. The seawall closed around Stanley Park for obvious reasons because the wind is really whipping up the high tide that is also happening. And so there's a lot of water kind of sloshing over. I hope there's not damage being done, but, you know, we'll find out, I guess, about that in the next day or two. So watch out for that. Also, just a note here for schools in the Hope area. That is the Fraser Cascade School District. Uh, They say that according, uh, due to an abundance, they said, of caution and whiteout conditions, uh, all schools in the Hope area are closed for staff and students today. Buses are not running on the Hope side either. So schools in Agassiz, Harrison, Hot Springs, Boston Bar are in session and buses are running, but on the Hope side, it is not. And that is because of the concern over the snow that is already falling out that way. So keep it tuned in here for the very latest on all of that. Right now, though, we're going to talk about being invisible. Like if you could be invisible, would you? Like I'm talking about like Harry Potter invisibility cloak kind of thing. We think about that being just outrageous, can't be possible. There's no way technology could do that. But you'd be surprised at what technology these days is actually capable of. Joining us now to talk about that is Guy Kramer, CEO of Hyperstealth Biotechnology Corporation. Guy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Guy, are you working on an invisibility cloak? Uh, We've already developed it. Uh, We filed the patents in 2018. Uh, They were published in 2019, and the story went viral until COVID hit, and uh, people had more important things to uh, talk about at that point. So uh, we've been kind of under the radar for the last couple of years, but uh, the material is uh, out there uh, and being used uh, within certain classified programs within the U.S., Um, we have videos of it up there. Once you patent something, it is a blueprint for anyone to see how it's done or how it works. And so um, it, it is functional. It requires no power source. It's 
basically two lenticular lenses. These are the lenses used in children's books to cause that 3D uh, motion or movie posters. And what I've done is I've put two of them back to back and offset them slightly. And what that does is it creates a zone in the middle of the material where you can actually completely hide a person or an object. And the the larger the object, the farther away the material has to be from the target. So it's not something right now that's going to be uh, uh, something that you can put on and, and wear, but that's where we're headed, where we think we're going to be in about 10 years. Right okay. now, it's something you have to hold in front of you. Okay. Guy, you realize this sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? That you actually managed to do something like this. Like how, how good is it? In what conditions does it work? Um, it works in any season, any time of the day or night in any location. And, and I design camouflage. That is my uh, expertise. Uh, I worked with the world camouflage expert, Lieutenant Colonel Timothy O'Neill. He passed away two months ago. Um, he was U.S. Army retired. Uh, but I have developed... Uh, over 15,000 camouflage patterns for 50 countries and um, have been doing that for over 20 years now. And and so in developing camouflage, you've got to develop something that matches the background. And ideally, what you want is something that can blend in with the background. So you either have a color-changing camouflage, which we did back in 2010, and we called it smart camo. We still haven't published those results because we've been asked not to by the U.S. military. Um but then uh, I went a step further the next year and actually developed this invisibility. And uh, that came about from years and years of training. Um, my, my grandfather invented the walkie-talkie just prior to World War II for Kaminko, uh, for the Bush pilots. And during the war, they sent him to Ottawa, where he further developed the walkie-talkie and received the uh, member of British Empire right after the war in the Order of Canada in 2001. And I worked with him from 1986 to 1992 uh, as his research assistant. And then he kicked me out of the nest and said, go take what I've taught you and apply it to whatever. And he taught me how to innovate. And so in 1999, we formed the company, got into the camouflage, and then got into the invisibility. So anyone can go to hyperstealth.com and look at these videos. Okay, Guy, I have no- to ask you, though. You, you talked about specializing in designing camo. What is the secret, then, to designing good camo? Um, it really is rocket science. You need to understand how the eye and brain uh, perceive shapes and patterns and colors. And uh, if you don't know that, then you're subjectively going to be making a lot of mistakes out there. And, and that's one thing we can count on from uh, other companies out there that are our competitors is they really don't understand what we do. And so we go through and, and actually test our camouflage objectively with cadets at West Point Military Academy. Um, they get credits for the course, but it allows us to actually figure out uh, if one performs better than another without uh, bias in there. Okay. And so, and then we can determine how many seconds of improvement you get with particular camouflage. Okay. So, but you think that we're actually working towards having something like an invisibility cloak? Like how many years away do you think we are from this? Well, it, it is being used by a couple of militaries out there in prototype uh, status right now. So they're testing it out, but it is something that can be used tomorrow. What we're hoping to do is actually get to the manufacturing phase. 
and uh, we just don't have the money to do that right now. But the prototypes are good enough that they are testing it in military applications out there. And it functions in the near-infrared, that would be your night vision, it functions in the ultraviolet, and it blocks thermal. So it, it, um, it doesn't bend thermal, but it has the same quality as it does across the rest of the spectrums. So what, uh, what do so you see? It, so when you're looking at it, what are you, what are you, you looking see the at? Background. You see the background. And, and so that is ideal for a sniper that is trying to match their background all the time. So you have one piece of material that works everywhere around the world, and, and that's all you need with you. It's gonna, what the user um, is hiding uh, in front of is what the uh, viewer is actually seeing. They're not actually seeing any sign of the, the sniper or the soldier um, unless they start to move. And even then, movement is very difficult to see with this material, whereas normal static camouflage, the first thing it gives you away is your movement. And so it becomes uh, something where special forces are going, well, we can do many things with this that we could never do with static camouflage before. So hiding in an open field is something they would never think of doing. Rather than spending hours crawling into a location without getting spotted, they can walk there now. So it it provides a, a huge benefit to them in numerous areas. And because right. it's not powered, it's lightweight. It, uh, it, how, how competitive is this area, Guy? Like, uh, there must be a lot of companies and a lot of people working on something similar. Well, because we've patented this, um, it is very difficult for anyone to come into this realm and and actually compete with us. The actual lenticular lens itself has been around for almost 100 years. So you can use that lens and get a similar effect. The problem is it creates a blurry background if you're just using the off-the-shelf lens. And so that becomes an anomaly, and you don't want an anomaly. You want a clear background uh, that uh, the brain isn't able to go, well, I, I actually see a square out there and, and it's, it's doing something weird, right? Um, so we've gone a step beyond that. And right mm. now we are unaware of anyone that is doing anything like this. And, and I've met with militaries around the world and chief scientists, and they've never seen anything like this. I, it, I mean, they, they wouldn't tell me if they did, but that's I can right. tell that's by the body thinking. language. <laughs> that's what right. I was thinking too. Listen, Guy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Guy Kramer, CEO of Hyperstealth Biotechnology Corporation. It doesn't sound real, but apparently it is working on developing an actual invisibility cloak.